Now would be a good time to put your cell phones on vibrate or your devices, turn them down. Somebody will call you, somebody will text you, or you do have a ring that you don't want anybody to know about. We all do. So we don't want to hear no, no Nicki Minaj ringtones on Sunday. We don't want to hear them, period, but especially on Sunday. Well, I am getting adjusted to being back. I am still a little bit on California time. Last week after, after the message, uh, Carlin, Carlin came up to me and gave me his phone, and he had found an article about a bears breaking into homes in Lake Tahoe. <laughs> if you remember, when I was on sabbatical, we spent a couple of days in Lake Tahoe. So I Googled trying to find that particular article, and I found a different one that actually was a news story where the couple, a family, had had video footage of the bear breaking in to the home. So I watched it. And it starts off with the two newscasters who kind of set the clip up, explained what's happening, what's about to happen. And they briefly interviewed the couple. They were a little mature in age. And the husband described it as a little bear that came into the house. And this had happened before. So then they showed the video clip. And you saw a bear come up to the window. And the guy had said this, the window was so small, I wouldn't have thought a little bear could fit through there. The, the bear comes up, looks through, knocks out the net, the netted part, the screen, comes through the window. And there's one thing that's clear as soon as you see that. That's not a little bear. <laughs> you know, when you say little bear to me, I think like this. Something that might scare you, but you'd be like, ah, oh, this is a little bear. Let me back up because I'm not familiar with bears. The bear was seven feet, 350. The bear could play for the skin's front line. Now, here's the part that's concerning for me personally because I was in Lake Tahoe. The man called it a little bear. <laughs> it was a little bear. So my first question was, after watching the video and talking with Carl and Carla, I didn't think of it until I actually got to my car and recounted that we could have seen that little bear. And so the first question I had was, well, what is a big bear? <laughs> Seven foot 350? The bear came in through the window, half of his body, looked around like it was ordering on the menu, <laughs> grabbed something from the sink, took that out, came back in. Grabbed the entree, took that out, came back in, and got a quick glass of water, <laughs> and then ran away. Suffice it to say, 
it's good to open my door here and not expect to see any bears. But we do have raccoons and we do have rabbits. But they ain't seven feet, 350. If you see a raccoon at seven feet, 350, pinch yourself or the Lord is bringing you home in a way you never thought. Because I can tell you right now, and this is the part that scared me the most. They told us lock the door. So one day, the, the, the cabin we were in didn't have good air conditioning. And it was cool because we were in the mountains. So I had the door open right behind me. And it was a nice, cool breeze. I was watching something on my iPad. And I didn't realize it. This has happened to all of us, right? All of a sudden, you're watching something. And the next thing you know, it's four hours later. Right? You didn't even see it coming. And I was like, man, it's cold in here. And I looked over the side and realized, man, I left the door open. And guess what the first thing I thought was? A bear. <laughs> and so I closed the door quickly in hopes that I, wouldn't fall, I didn't fall asleep and miss something. So I looked around the house to make sure. And it's not my house, so everything I can't remember. I was like, man, did I? Did we leave that right there? You know how when you're looking around, did I leave that right there? So I went up and examined it and looked and was like, man, that's not something my kids would do. <laughs> and I just trusted the Lord. I said, if I die, we're going to have a story to tell. <laughs> Nevertheless, the Lord brought me home, and I'm here, but I'm having nightmares of bears, so please pray for me. It's so bad I can't even eat gummy bears right now. I can't even... <laughs> I know I shouldn't eat them, but I can't eat them right now because they remind me of what could have been. <laughs> Some of y'all know. All right, so this is what we're doing today. We have been in a seesaw series in the book of Romans. And by that, I mean, we started this some months ago. And every so often that we feel compelled to stop and take a break for a second, we'll do that. Obviously, I was on sabbatical for a month, so this is only my second week back. Mike did a great job, and the leadership team did a great job making sure the church stayed focused on Sunday mornings for those four weeks that I was gone. But we have to get back to the book of Romans. Now, where we would be if we had continued or if we were picking up where we left off would be in Romans chapter 4. Here's the problem. This is the sixth week since we've heard a message on Romans. I could easily jump into Romans chapter 4, but it would be like a bear is attacking us because we wouldn't be as connected. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do something I never, never, never like to do, but I think it's necessary for the, the series that we're in. We're going to do a review of chapters 1 through 3, right? So I want to apologize in advance. Romans is a very dense theological book. I'm not going to be able to zoom in to all aspects because we're going to cover just three chapters just to remind ourselves what are some of the things that God, speaking through Paul, wanted this church to know and this church to know for our benefit? So we're going to zoom into some parts of it, but most of it, I'm going to make some just comments and we're going to get past, remind you of some things that I've said and maybe point out something that I didn't say when I taught in the passage, when I actually made it a particular sermon. And then by the end of today, hopefully we'll have been caught up to Romans 1 through 3. Next week, we'll pick up in Romans chapter 4. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to need help for this. This is not a game. 
Father, I jokingly acknowledge at the beginning of today that the story of the bear and bears in general. And I do, as I thanked you when we left. Thank you that that wasn't our experience. Thank you that you protected us. Thank you that you were with us. Thank you that you brought us back home. That our time away was, was a good time for our family. But we have, this is our family as well. And so we can't be gone too long from this family. And so this morning, Lord, I'm, I gave myself, which I believe is best for where we're at at our particular series, is to just do a review of, of Romans 1 through 3, these chapters. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give me grace and wisdom to do this. I pray that this would be to some degree um, helpful because this will be very dense and these types of messages and having to explain and connect all these dots and re-explain things can often not be as appealing. But I feel like it's beneficial for us today to just look at over three chapters what, is, what it is you are communicating that you want us to know. For, for this is your word. And for those of us who profess to believe in you, we must be guided by your word. For you are not sending prophets anymore as you did in the Old Testament. John the Baptist was the last. You are not, we don't trust visions and dreams. We don't practice the black arts and we don't go to get our palms read and we don't trust psychic networks. We trust your word. We don't trust archaeologists and, and people who, who have studied the Bible that don't have any faith in it. We don't trust politics. We don't trust governments. We don't trust, we don't take our cues on how we are to live in this world from anything but your word. And so I pray that this morning would be no different. And while we may have to hit things at a higher level than I would like to, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit that you would make what's applicable to each of us who are listening be applicable for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, real quick before we jump in, let's just remember what's happening when this is being written. All right, real quick, let's remember this. This book, Romans, is clearly the most theologically dense book in the Bible, particularly that Paul a man who was saved by Jesus Christ and given the responsibility to preach the gospel primarily to people who were not Jewish. These would be called Gentiles in the Bible. And he was given the charge by Jesus Christ to go to people who were not initially God's people, like in the Old Testament. They didn't go into the temple. They didn't know Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and the law that the Jews had been given from Moses through God, from God, through Moses. They didn't have that. They just lived their life. And so Paul is speaking to these groups of people and he's explaining to them about Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that they understand exactly why they should believe and how to live in light of that. These people, people are religious. No matter what, people are religious. Whether they believe in Jesus Christ or not, they're religious. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul walks up to this place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill, and he's, he's looking at all these religious inscriptions, and, and it says his soul was tormented as he saw all this worship of gods. And the first thing he said to the people were, I see that you are a religious people. So he understands that people know how to worship. 
They can be religious. They can follow rules. Now, remember, prior to him making that statement, his heart, his soul was tormented because he knew that there were all these gods. And there was one inscription that said to an unknown God. And so he seized the moment to say, let me explain to you who this unknown God is. And in fact, he's the only God. But he acknowledges they're religious people. So people know how to worship. The question is, who do you worship? And if you're not worshiping the right God, then you're not really worshiping. And so Paul's job, and you'll see this in many of his letters. This is why Paul explains who Jesus is What he did, almost all of his letters, almost all of them, almost all of his letters have that kind of function. Let me tell you who Jesus is first, then let me tell you how to live. Let me make sure you understand what he's done on the cross, and then let me tell you how to live. Okay, that's what he does. But sometimes the churches have Jewish people in them, and they understand God's law. So they have a different challenge. For them, they've spent the last 1,500 years... Now, a lot of scholars, scholars say that the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C. I think that was when I was reading that stuff last. Who knows? They change this stuff often. If I'm wrong, ask Carl or Dr. Leah, one of them. They could take it updated. But the last I heard, it was about 1446 B.C. is when they think the Exodus happened where God led the Jews, mixed with some others, out of Egypt into the Promised Land. So 1,500 years, the Jews have been told, here's the law, here's how you live, this is your God's people. And you get circumcised, which is an act where at at eight days, boys have a part of their anatomy cut, and they're circumcised. And so this is sort of the the way you are God's people, and they've been living this for 1,500 years. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and now the rules have changed. They start hearing stuff like, you don't have to obey the Mosaic law anymore, the Ten Commandments, because you actually can. That law was given to you to show you how to live perfectly, and any time you don't live perfectly, if you sin one time, you've been, you're incapable of living that faithfully to God. So Jesus shows up, he lives this life, he does all these miracles, people believe in him. He is killed on the cross. He rises from the dead. He's sharing the gospel after that. And then he gives his spirit to some disciples, some men who go out and preach this to other people. And people get saved. But this is a transient time. It's a transition period. Because the Jews are still battling with, well, my identity was to do things this way. And the Gentiles were thinking, well, I just, we just do this. We worship this way. And now... Excuse me, Jesus comes, and now he's saying, you have to worship this way specifically. So Paul is speaking to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it, and he needs to clarify what exactly does it mean to follow Jesus Christ. This is a transition period. What does it mean to truly worship? And so... He writes letters explaining to the churches. Some of them he interacted with before he wrote. Some of them he never met. This is a church that Paul hasn't gone to yet, but he's heard of. And it's in a city, the most famous city in the world at the time. 
It's incredible to have a church here in a city like this where people in Rome, where people are coming in and out. This is the New York City of this day and age. And people are coming in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. So if you can share the gospel and get these people to believe, they'll take it back to where they live and share the gospel where they live and it just spreads. So this is a very important church. And he's really excited that there is actually a church of people who believe in Jesus in this godless city like Rome. And so he wants to address them. And he begins by, we'll look at the first couple verses, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he starts off, he introduces himself, but he's less concerned with them knowing his accolades and who he is. He just identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and as an apostle, and then he goes on to make sure that they understand, this is what I'm most concerned with that you know. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He's layering theological truths in this introduction. And I would say if you look at any other letter, there's no other letter that you'll find in the New Testament, particularly that Paul writes that is this loaded as an introduction. Hey, how you doing? Did you know that Jesus died on the cross? He was born from David. He just lists all this stuff. Now, the Jews in the church, they identify with this because they understand who the prophets are. They understand about Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah. They understand who these prophets are. They understand about that. They understand the connection of David, King David, who was around 986 B.C., 500 years after the Exodus. They understand who David is. They understand that that the the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world, is coming in the lineage of David. So he's bringing this introduction in to say, hey, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one. So these, these descriptions... Or not just, you ever, you ever have a conversation with somebody and they're trying to impression they're using really big words? Well, the metamorphosis of the trigonometron inside of the diametric, he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, a couple years ago, there was a brother that was coming to this church. He still comes to the church, but I ain't going to embarrass him. But we, we used to be in this group called the Jonah Group. And this dude, for whatever reason, he, 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 wanted to, he wanted to sound intelligent. So he would always use big words that he didn't understand the context of those words when he was explaining his answers. So we called him Black Rattees. <laughs> because we were like, man, what are you talking about? And it would be like, hey, so what do you think about this? I mean, you know, from the philosophical trigonometry of the and then once he did that, we just looked at each other like, here we go. <laughs> you, some of y'all don't remember this. There was a show called In Living Color years ago. And there was this dude that was in prison. And he wanted to sound real educated. So he would be like this. The metaphysical nature of the public. And he'd do this whole skit. They seen it. <laughs> they, they got TV land. They watched it last night. He, 
He would do this whole skit, and you, there was not one clear sentence in that whole skit, and then would fade to black, right? This is not what Paul's doing, okay? Paul is not using a lot of theological terms to sound important. He's making sure that the people who are reading this letter understand what he's talking about, who he's talking about, and how serious it is. So as he's describing these pithy little statements of this is, he is using Jewish redemptive history to make the connection that Jesus Christ is the one. And these are all the ways that he's doing this. So we get to verse 4. And was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. If you're a Gentile, you're like, man, what is he talking about? But the Jews, they get it. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. So his point is this, look, here's Jesus Christ, the son of God, son of David, from the spirit of holiness, has given us the responsibility to help you learn how to obey him. Why? Because you've expressed faith in Jesus Christ. So you need to learn how to live, right? Even now we do that. You don't tell someone to believe in Jesus and they say, okay, and you say, hey, man, nice getting to know you. What do you do? You invite them to your church. Or you say, can we do a Bible study? Let me, let me explain to you what you now say you agree with. Let me make sure you understand because you don't want to leave people hanging. People can get swept away and go to all types of ways, so you want to disciple those people. And that's beautiful because that's what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28. He said, go throughout the world and make disciples. Many people think that means evangelism. No, it means disciple people. It doesn't mean just tell them to believe in Jesus. It means you show them. And you continue to show them. And you show them. So he's highlighting this because he wants to make sure you know this is of utmost importance. This is real. And he goes in to just talk about, he casually says in the next few verses, well, this is important, verse 7. This is important. We talked about this a little bit last week from a different, from Jude's perspective, but this is always important. And Mike alluded to this when he had us, when he prayed, when he came up at the end of worship. He says this, to all who are in Rome, and he's talking about all who believe in Jesus Christ, not all of Rome. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Mike mentioned that at the end. I, I, I sense there might be some people who don't feel loved by God. I would say that that is a normal occurrence for most, if not all, professing Christians. Most, if not all. And I think the scripture specifically and intentionally says that phrase often. You know what? Because you just don't need, this is the thing. Sometimes we think we just need faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's part of it. That's how we get in. But we need faith that we are who he says we are after that. We need faith. You sin, you stumble, you, you can't make progress in some areas or you, whatever happens or circumstances happen and you think, man, why is God allowing this to happen? Even if you don't say that phrase, you feel that, right? We need to be reminded. We need to have faith that we're loved by God and called as saints because that's not how we feel. That's not how you feel. People say, man, what's, man when I first became a pastor, hey, man. What does it feel like to be a pastor? I was like the same way it did when I wasn't. Probably even a little heavier. Because you wake up and you're supposed to be the example. You're supposed to have it figured out. And it's like, man, I wake up and don't like the world just like you do. 
I wake up with some of the same challenges you do. I don't wake up every morning and I'm like, oh, I just can't wait to read the Bible and pray. I mean, I'm sure some people do. Talk to me after the service. That's not how most of us wake up. We wake up and we're like, man, I got to work today. What do I got to do? You wake up with all these thoughts on your mind, and then you remember at some point within the first 12 minutes after checking Facebook and a couple of the notifications that you should spend some time with the Lord before you do the rest of your day. And then you make a decision whether you will or won't. Good, it's not just me. So this idea of being loved by God and called as saints is very important, and he wants to make sure that they understand that. In the next few verses, in the next seven verses, Paul is just going to explain to them that he's excited to see them. I'm not going to read this. He's excited to see them. He's looking forward to spending time with them because he's heard of their faith, and he's been telling other people throughout the world, throughout the world that he's traveling in, that these people, there's a church in Rome that has genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, in that day, when people heard that, it would be like, whoa, Rome, Rome? Am I talking about Rome, Rome? A church in Rome, Rome? There's a church in Rome. It's equivalent to us being excited if someone famous would say, what? LeBron's a believer? I don't know if he is or isn't, but if it was clear, people would all of a sudden be wearing his jerseys, Christians. Right, we'd be excited. Even now, we're, we're so excited about people that we think are, have a stature that say they believe in Jesus as if somehow Jesus needs their popularity to be king. Jesus doesn't need anybody to be king. I don't care who famous becomes a Christian. Good for you. Because if you weren't one, that fame would be the, the circumstances in which you'd be judged. But we get excited. So Paul's telling the people, hey, there's a church in Rome. They're excited. He's excited. I want to come see you. I want to I benefit from you. I want to see what you're learning. I also want to teach you some things. I want to teach you some things. And then he gets to the most significant part of his letter. And I would say these two verses are the defining, defining moment, if you will, in this whole letter. And I would say in Paul's life, these two verses started a movement called the Reformation. These, these two verses are the defining truth that after these two verses, Paul's going to spend the majority of the letter making sure that people see the distinction between these two verses and everything else. And the verses are Romans 1, 16 and 1, 17. So he explains to them that he's eager to come to Rome and preach. And Rome is not, Rome is like any other city they're not excited about Christianity. It's not like the cities back then were like, oh, cool. There was a period in church history where Rome, and that's a different story. Maybe, maybe we'll cover that in Sunday school or something. That's a different conversation. There's a small period in the life of the church, the history of the church, where it was cool to be a Christian. But at this point in time, it's not. So Paul's saying he's eager, verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, and then he gets to the verses. 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, for God, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is the dividing line in the sand for all humanity. And he puts it in these two verses 
And after this, we'll see in just a moment, everything is compared to that line. What side of the line are you on? What side of the line are you on? This is the divining line in, the, the, in humanity. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is the life, death of Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there's a line in the sand. It's you believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. Now, we have categories today that are not real categories. You either believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. Now we have, well, I'm agnostic. I'm atheist. I'm somewhere in between. I'm into Zoroastrianism, whatever. I'm into, we have all these different categories, right? Yet people don't want labels, right? Don't label me, but this is who I am. That's a label. You realize that, right? <laughs> Not wanting a label is a label. So, so you have all this stuff going on, and, the, and it's really clear. It's really black and white in the scriptures. It's you, it's you believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. It's that simple. And that's why when someone came up to Jesus and asked him, how can they be saved? And when, and when Jesus asked him a question and he replied back, Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He said, you're not there yet because you don't believe in me. You're not far, but you're not there yet. Either you believe or you don't. And so after these verses, he, let, he draws the line in the sand, and then he begins to explain what happened to the non-Jewish world, those who would be called Gentiles, which many of us in this room would, 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 would classify as that. What happened to the non-Jewish world for rejecting God? What happened to this world? Now remember, this church is filled with Jews and Gentiles. And there are times where he will be talking to some of them very specifically. And so as he's explaining this, he says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's saying God is going to judge. He's angry because there is truth that people understand and they suppress it. They're ignoring it. They're pushing it down. And from his perspective, that's unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is evil, wickedness, sinfulness. And this is what he said in verse 19. He said, they, they suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to him. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Here's what he's saying. Okay, here's a dividing line. Faith in Jesus Christ or not. It says these people, God has given these people, humanity, enough, enough revelation to know that there is a God. He's very specific. And there's something about him I must believe. God has given humanity that. And what he's describing here is that people are taking that notion, that truth, and ignoring that. So his point is this, look, you can't look at the order of the world and just give credit to a big bang. You just can't do it. 
You can't look at the world, the seasons, the sun, rising, all of the things that happen, the animals that get cared for, the, the, the biological structure, the way humanity is created. Even Darwin himself is famous for saying, when I look at the intricacy of the eyeball in humanity, one must wonder if there is a creator above. This is Darwin. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he's saying. I've seen the eyeball and the ins and outs of it, and there's no way that just the eyeball can happen unless something created that, some intelligent design. So, so God is saying from this perspective, my invisible attributes, his, his, his beauty, his majesty, his, his ability to sustain the world. I mean, if there was a big bang theory, then how come there's no other planets that we know of that have life like we do? Did the big bang only make earth? Like we, we have all this stuff that you just be like, how does this work that way? I've heard it said that we have, like, I forgot, in our body, some, like, long, some un crazy length of intestines just wrapped around each other. I forgot how long it is. We're not even that tall. How do you have, like, 800 feet of intestines wrapped in your body and you 5'5"? Five five? <laughs> what little bear is 7 feet, 350 pounds, still bothered by that? There's no such thing in the world. That man would have had a cardiac arrest. It would have been a different news clip if he'd have seen that bear come in there. Little bear, nothing. He's saying, look, the world has seen enough to know that there is a God. There's no such thing as atheists or agnostics. There are only people who are willfully suppressing the truth, and for that, they're going to be judged. And he spends the rest of the chapter highlighting ways that God is judging people by allowing them to give themselves over to wicked and gross sinfulness. And this is the non-Jewish world. So he lists this category of different sins, and I imagine the Jews are reading this, and they may be self-righteously judging because it's the Gentile world. And they're like, yeah, that's exactly what they do. That's exactly how these people are, yep. And so then he goes to chapter 2. And he says this, talking specifically to the Jews. He says, therefore, verse 1, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same things, you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Just saying, look, you're judging these people, but you do the same things. And God hasn't brought about the judgment on you that he could. Do you realize that's only because God is exercising mercy and restraint towards you to give you time to obey him? And it's very common to do this. This is common for all of us to do this. I do this. All of us are stricken with the reality. I mean, think about this. You read a headline. Um, recent headlines in Pennsylvania. Catholic Church. Significant, horrible, horrible violations of child sexual abuse. 
in multiple Catholic church in Pennsylvania. And you watch that, and your initial response is like disgust. How could they do that? You think about your child. When you hear the names of the, the ages of the children that were molested and sexually assaulted by these men, and you think, man, that's, that's, that, that's my son's age. And the, the ease in which this self-indignation rises up, you know, because you haven't done that or you think you would never do that. Well, do you know where that comes from? It comes from the same thing we all struggle with, lust. It comes from that. So the seed is there. We may not have done the action, but the seed is there. Do you know where murder comes from? Anger. This is why Jesus said, if you say you fool to someone, you are liable of hell. Because murder comes from anger. So Paul, recognizing the possibility that the Jews who are reading this this letter, this portion of the letter about the Gentiles and their sinfulness are self-righteously judging them, but they do some of the same things. Because here's what Paul hasn't said yet, but he's getting to this. The line is in the sand, either you believe in Jesus or you don't. But that belief in Jesus is not a mental ascent, it's a lifestyle ascent. There's a lot of people that say they believe in Jesus. Or they check the box Christianity. I was watching this documentary the other day about these white supremacists and neo-Nazis. And they all claim to be white-blooded, heterosexual, Christian males. In what scripture? They must be reading the Jefferson Bible. Because he ripped out all the stuff he didn't like. And made him a nice little Bible that he could be comfortable with. The Bible that I read, the Bible that we're looking at, would disagree with your evaluation of yourself. Everyone thinks they believe. The most checked box in America for religious preference is Christianity. But then you'll read this. Pew, pew, pew polls indicate that 84% of Americans only attend church three times a year. And read their Bibles once a year. You know, if you were in a natural relationship with somebody, if you don't talk to a person at all, at all, you don't have a relationship with them. Like if you tell a good friend of yours or your spouse or your children or something, oh, I love you, I love you, and then you don't talk to them, you don't spend no time with them or nothing, but you say it, what would they say? You wouldn't believe it. Do you know if you don't spend time with God? You say, I love God, I believe in God, but you don't read, you don't pray, you don't do anything, you complain about going to church, you complain about all that, all that stuff. What does that say? What does that say? I mean, all of us can binge Netflix for hours. What does that say? When the, when, when I, when, when I, what I take in has nothing to do with my eternal salvation. Read for 15 to 20 minutes, let me watch this for a few hours. Like, we all do this, all of us. 
So Paul is laying this out. He's getting to this point because these people are professing to believe. But he's challenging them. Verse 5, because of your hardened heart and unrepented heart, your hardness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. He's trying to help them understand, hey, this is serious. Like this Jesus, the righteous will live by faith. That's the dividing line. Faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't care how you feel. He doesn't care about your personality. Doesn't care. Listen, all of us have different experiences, right? So we have different crosses to go through. There are people in here who have never been anywhere close to like the streets. And so your natural response to things will be totally different than mine would be. There are circumstances you have that you just, I just can't relate to them. I have no idea what you're going. So I don't have to. You have a cross that you have to carry that may be different from mine, but we all have to carry one by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian that won't have to carry one. Because if Jesus hung on one, then we got to carry one. They go hand in hand. So Paul is setting the stage for God's righteous judgment. And then he transitions in verse 12. He transitions because I think he doesn't really name anyone specifically yet. And so I think the Jews are hearing all this stuff. And there are some who probably think, yeah, yeah, I agree with him. He's right. All those people who don't have the law. You see, in, in, in verses 18 through 32, this part that I didn't touch was the, those who are Gentiles that reject God. It says that they, they, they trusted their own intellect. Real quick, real quick, look back in chapter 1. Look at what it says. Verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So you know what it was for them? Their righteousness was their intellectual ability. You know, in the modern world, we have these categories like the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was around back then. The Enlightenment has been around for a long time. Claiming to be wise, apart from God, it means you think you're enlightened more than God. That's wild, but it's real. So as these people are reading this letter, as Paul's going through this letter, as he's writing this letter, Paul's, I believe he's anticipating, God's leading him, anticipating what people are thinking, and so he makes it clear that he's talking to people who are also Jewish who find their righteousness not necessarily by faith either, but in something else. And he highlights that in verse 12. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. I was like, oh, wait, hold up. Under the law? These are people who have heard the law of Moses. So whenever you hear under the law, it just means you have heard the law of Moses and have agreed to live to it. Let's just think of the law of Moses as the Ten Commandments. Even though there's 613 different things, commands, there's Ten Commandments summarize the law of Moses. He said, all who sin under that will be judged under the law. All who don't sin without, they're going to die without the law either. So in other words, everybody's in trouble. Because the people who don't know the law and still sin, they're going to get judged by God. And the people who do know the law and sin, they're going to get judged by God. So it's like, man, where is the party? <laughs> and then he explains, so verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have, by nature have the law, do what the law commands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And this is what I was saying about earlier. This is why God is going to judge them, because he's put this in their hearts to know truth. 
Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either excuse or either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret. So the, you know how people, used to, when I used to do evangelism, especially at like colleges, when I used to go share the gospel, share the truth of Jesus, the story of Jesus with people, I'd always get this question, what about the pygmies in Africa? Something like that. I'd be like, well, you, where, where that? you can't even spell pygmies, man. You don't care about the pygmies in Africa. But they would make it seem like, what about the people who don't hear about the gospel? Like, they're going to go to hell. Like, what kind of God would do that? And that was always a tough question to answer. Because one, God doesn't specifically say what he's going to do. But in this passage right here, God says at least this. I can judge people by their own consciences that I've given them. Because I've placed my law in their heart. So even if you haven't heard stealing and lying and all that stuff is wrong, you get that because you're made in God's image and God has placed that in your heart. And God can still judge you based upon your own conscience. And James says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So there will be people who can still be judged by God based on their conscience. How does that all work? God doesn't give us that specific. But no one is getting away with anything. No one. And then he specifically gets into the Jews. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, so here's what he's attacking now. The non-Gentile world, their righteousness was defined by their wisdom. They claim to be wise. The Jews find their righteousness in the law and circumcision. And Paul is trying to say that righteous, the righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ, not in faith in your ability to keep the law, which you can't, or the fact that you're circumcised is a sign of God's covenant, his agreement with Abraham. He's saying your, your righteousness will not be, the righteous do not live by their own wisdom. So he's got the Gentile world, you're done. And now he's coming to the Jewish side. You're also done because you measure righteousness by your ability to keep the law, which you can't because you have to do it perfectly. You know, in school, that we, I remember having some tough classes when I did my theological training. I remember our apologetics class was crazy. Me and Drew were laughing about this because Drew took apologetics this summer. And we were studying Van Til. It's a certain type of apologetic. And I remember our teacher, he was just so well-versed in it that he forgot we weren't. You ever had somebody explain something to you that they really into and don't realize you don't know what they talk, you don't, they don't know what you're talking about? Like, you, you know, I talk to IT guys, hey, what is this? Well, actually, man, if you take this cord and you twist it back and that drizzle, and I'm sitting there like, hey, hey, go, I, go ahead, man. So don't do that. <laughs> man, you lost me on take. Like, what do you mean? What you, what you mean? This <laughs> is difficult. And it's like, when I was in this course, man, we could not, I just, I was like, man, I like apologetics. Oh, I used to, but I don't now. Like, I don't even, after that class, I didn't even want to tell anybody about Jesus. I was like, you just, I don't know what to tell you. Ask him. I couldn't get it. He was saying all this wild stuff. Presuppositionalist, you got to go to this, got to go to that. I said, man, I just want to ask somebody, what do you believe? And we all did terrible in the class, except for two dudes. So he said, look, I'm going to grade on the curve. So I passed because he graded on a curve. Now, full disclosure, I had just had my son Santiago. He was a baby. It was crazy. It was a crazy time. I was tired as I don't know what, because Santiago was committed to not letting me and Betsy sleep at all. <laughs> it, was a, it was a commitment that he had between him and the devil were committed <laughs> to not letting us get no sleep. 
I'd work hard. I'd hold him on my chest for 28 minutes with the water running. And I'd slowly walk him over to the crib. I mean, I, I mean I'm talking about I took great. Let me, let me tell you something. <laughs> I took great skill in putting him down. So slow. If you've seen Infinity War when Drax was like, I feel so still, I, I'm not moving. I felt like that. I thought he was invisible. I just thought, man, I'm putting him down. I was like, man, look at this technique. I mean, I might have to teach this. Shoot, Betsy, man, get the camera and let me show you how to put your son down on this thing. And as soon as I put him down, I'd be like, all right, three, two, one. Thank you, Lord. Wang! <laughs> so I failed the class, but, I, but he graded on the curve, so I passed it. Okay. God is not grading on a curve. He's not. He does not grade on a curve. You either have faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous will live by faith. Your obedience, righteousness, morality, good works, good deeds, your righteousness, the good that you do will be because of your faith in Jesus Christ or it's not. There are people who will do good works that have nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ, and it will not count. There's not, he's not grading on a curve. God is the bear. And he's eating everything. All your sandwiches. All right, so he's going after the Jews. He's making sure the Jews understand that, listen, your righteousness is not going to be measured by the law. It will not be measured by the law or circumcision. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to cover it. Yes, those were real things. Yes, God gave you the law. Yes, he circumcised you as, a, as part of his commitment to Abraham, which we'll get into in chapter 4 next week. But what he's saying, what Paul is trying to get across is you are not safe. Don't think because you have the law that makes you better than the people that don't have the law. As a matter of fact, Scripture says the people who know more will have less, worse of a time and punishment. Be beaten with many blows. James 3.1 is, to me, is still the scariest passage in the Bible. It says, it says paraphrase, it says, brothers, you know that those of us who are, who teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. I'm excited about that. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Stricter judgment. This is why I pray now, Lord, you don't need me. I've been, I've been good. I've been a pastor here 10 years. I can go finish out my time so I don't get that stricter judgment. I just want to escape that. He's going after the Jews, their understanding of the law, and then in verse 25 down, he goes after their circumcision. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcised. In other words, that procedure that cut off part of the male anatomy when you were eight days old, that proved you were a part of, in relationship with God, in and of itself, does not make you special. You are not saved now that Jesus Christ has come. Because once you sin, it's like you were uncircumcised. It's like you were uncircumcised. A man who, then he goes on to explain this, verse 26. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his circumcision be counted as circumcision? So now he's asking these questions that are not realistic because no one can keep the law. The law, 
God's, God's standard is perfection. Here's the Ten Commandments. Don't break one of them if you want to make it to heaven. Now, God knew they wouldn't, so God in his mercy provided ways that people's sins could be forgiven through sacrificial animals with the priests in the temple. So Jesus comes now and is the ultimate sacrifice and says, okay, I'm sacrificing my own son. No more animal sacrifice, no more bloodshed. My son will receive the punishment for sin once and for all. And after that, the righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ is the line in the sand. Either you do or you don't. And the righteousness, your good works, will be because you want to honor the Lord. Not because you want to make a difference in humanity. Apart from Jesus Christ, you will not make the difference that you thought. It will have no eternal value. And I know that sounds harsh, but it can't be harsher than God allowing his own son, who's never done anything wrong, to receive the full punishment for all the sins ever committed. Just so people like us who will continue to sin can be forgiven. I've said this before. I'll say it again. It would be, I, I would not give my son his life up for, um, for someone who I knew was going to continue in the lifestyle that they're in. I wouldn't do it. You keep doing what you're doing, but I'm, my boys are staying with me. But God did. And so rejection of that, he takes very seriously in the same way that any parent in here would be offended if you reject or do something to their child. Before I had kids, I'll never forget this. And now I, I think about this often. Before I had kids, I was in, I was in uh, pastor's college. And a buddy of mine had a couple. He had a little son and a daughter. He was a pastor out in Germany. Looked like, I, we jokingly called him Cruz. Looked like a German Tom Cruise. He really didn't, but that was, you know, it was just kind of joking with him. So one day his son was running through, running through the room, and I made like this face. I think I was like, <sighs> just playing. I was just playing. Like, <sighs> and his son ran. He got scared. He was already scared of me. You know, like most kids, when they see me, they're like, Dag the bear. You know, so it's like, <laughs> so I'm already the seven-foot bear. So he was running away, and I was just joking. And then, and then Chris, his name was Christian. This is the only time I've seen him kind of be a little bit mad. And he said this to me. He said, I'm going to do that when you have kids. And he smiled, but I knew he was angry that I did that. So I stopped and I apologized. And I think of things that people have done to hurt my children's feelings. And that bear in me comes out. Why would God, the father, not be a bear towards people who reject Jesus Christ? his son, if you and I who are sinful would protect and defend and even give our life for our children, why would we expect God to not care about people rejecting his son? So hell is for people who reject Jesus Christ. It's real. Either your righteousness is by faith in him or it's not. And so for these Jews, they're saying, look, Circumcision, look at verse 29. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who was one inwardly. So he's saying, look, you're not just a Jew because your ethnicity, 
Your ethnicity and your circumcision was supposed to help you be one who honors God with your life. So you got to be a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is not on the physical part of you. It's of the heart. It means I'm cut to the heart. I want to honor the Lord of Acts 2. When they heard the gospel being preached, they said, Scripture says, they were cut to the heart. And they asked, how can I be saved? God is saying through Paul that you all were supposed to be cut to the heart, not have confidence that you were cut in the flesh. You self-righteously thinking that you are, that you're doing everything right. And I'm telling you, you're not. This is why Jesus came. Do you realize if you were obeying the law perfectly, you Jews, that we, I wouldn't have had to send Jesus. You would be the example to the world, but you're not. So he comes. He's the example. So now you, too, cannot have confidence in the fact that I gave you the Ten Commandments and that you were circumcised. It must happen here. It must happen here. So then chapter 3, Paul anticipates their objection. He anticipates. So he says at the beginning of verse chapter 3, so what advantage does the Jew have then? That's the question I would ask. Well, Dad, what's the point of being a Jew then? What's the point? If we, if we getting the same thing that the Gentiles are getting, judgment, then what's the point? What's the benefit of circumcision then? If it doesn't make me any different than the people who aren't circumcised, then what's the benefit? He's anticipating their argument because it's a rational argument to make. You spent 1,500 years believing and living a certain way, and now you're telling me that that way of life doesn't matter anymore and that I'm going to experience the same thing they're going to experience? <laughs> I'm a, I saw this video clip actually this morning. I saw it this morning. And I'm only saying this because it, it, it reminded me of this reality. There was a, a guy, tall, white gentleman at the airport, and he was, for whatever reason, all you saw was him wrestling with the police at the airport. This guy had like a business shirt on, looked like he was tall. He's, he's like, no, 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 please don't hurt me. Don't do this to me. Why are you doing this to me? There were three officers trying to subdue him. And he's saying, look, at, please help. He's asking the people, look, I'm not doing anything. Help, help. And they, they wrestle him to the ground. I think it's in the airport or it's in a mall or something like that. And they're wrestling him to the ground, and they're wrestling him, these three officers. And you know what he says? He says, you're treating me like a black person. This is what he said on the video. That's what he said. And then the video fades to black. This is what they're saying. You're, treating, you're telling us we're no different than the Gentiles. You're treating us like a Gentile. That video is on you. You'll find it. I'm not making it up. I'm not bringing it up to be racially charged. I just thought, wow. What a wild thing to say. And how true it is, unfortunately. And that's the same thing they're saying. Wait a minute, you're treating us like the Gentiles. What's the, what's the point of circumcision then? And Paul says, it's considerable in every way. They were entrusted with the very words of God. And that's important. They're entrusted with the words of God. You were the people that God, out of all the different kinds of people in the world, God chose you to give you the words of himself. And then for his son to be born from your ethnicity. That's huge. That's why it says first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's not God's favoritism. It's just saying, it's just, it's just order. Jesus came from the Jews, so the Jews are going to get judged first. And the same way if I go out and I come home and my house is a wreck, I'm going to ask my oldest son, what happened, man? You was the oldest. Like I thought, tell your little brothers to stop. 
the Jews, God, Paul said, look, God chose you to bring his revelation to the world. Salvation comes from your ethnicity. What you mean? What you mean? What are you talking about? What's the benefit? Look, God isn't saying you're no longer worthy. He's saying you have to believe in Jesus Christ just like these people do. I sent the Messiah from you. What's the problem? I chose you as a group of people, ethnicity out of all the peoples in the world, not the Babylonians, not the Mesopotamians, not the Philistines, not all these other people, not the Assyrians. I chose you, the Hebrews, the Jews, to bring salvation to the world. That's huge. What I'm telling you now is that the way you do it is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles, the way you do it is by faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, God is righteous when he judges. And so in chapter 3, they begin to question, well, how is God righteous then if he's going to judge? I mean, if, if grace is supposed to be, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So if that means that whenever I sin, God's grace is greater, then why don't we just sin? Because we'll demonstrate that God's grace is greater. Why is he judging us? And he starts getting into all these philosophical, hypothetical arguments that people are making. Because it's difficult to accept this reality that he lays out in verse 10. Starting in verse 9, what then? Are we any better off as a Jew? No, not all, not all, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. And in verses 10 through 18, quoting from five different passages of Scripture, stringing them together, he makes the point that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. There is no one who sees God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless, all to make the point that from God's perspective, no, you're not righteous. I just overlooked your sinfulness because I'm merciful. You're not righteous. The righteous will live by faith. And the only one who's demonstrated righteous, perfect faith is Jesus Christ. So the righteous will now live by faith in Jesus Christ because his faith is the only one that I'm pleased with. And if your faith is in his faith, then I'm now pleased with you. And so we live our lives, even though we struggle, even though we fall, even though we make mistakes, even though we do these things, we get back up and we fight to live our faith in Jesus Christ. And God says, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're a co-heir in Christ. You're a royal priest. Because the righteous will live by faith. I'll say this lastly, and one of the reasons why the righteous live by faith is because if you were to live by anything else besides faith in something outside of yourself in Jesus Christ, then you could take credit for your salvation. If you could say, hey, I'm really, I mean, you've all heard this. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You ever heard someone say that? I'm a good person. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't, I, don't, I mean, if that's the standard, there's a lot of good people out there. You know, I haven't hurt anybody. I don't, that's probably not true. There's not a person alive who hasn't hurt somebody. People have just forgiven you or didn't tell you that you hurt them. I don't do all these things. I don't, you know, lie and commit to murder or anything. Good. You know, I provide for my children. My food got... Clothes on the, my children got clothes on their back and food in their stomach. Good, because if not, you'd be in prison. What you mean? Like, what's that? 
I love when people boast about how good they are. You provide for your children. You should. That's a fundamental responsibility. You are going to prison if you don't. Like, I'm not boasting in that. If I say, hey, look, my kids eat every night and they got clothes on their back, good. That just means I ain't going to prison. That does not mean you're a good person. There is no such thing according to God. There is no one good, not even one. And one of the reasons why God did it this way is in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Who can boast and say, look, what kind of Jew I am? Look at this. The only person who we know of that boasted like that besides the Pharisees was Paul. In Philippians 3, Paul was like, hey, look, I was a Jew of Jews. I was all these things. A Hebrew of Hebrews, and he goes on this list. Trained under Gamaliel, which was the, the greatest theologian, Jewish theologian back then. He was a, oh, he's naming all these categories, and he says, all that means nothing in Jesus Christ. I count it as nothing, rubbish. He says, well, where's boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? One of works? No. Because the works that you do aren't good enough. Is God the God of the Jews only? No. No. He's adjusting their perspective, everyone, so that they can see Romans 1, 16 and 17, the righteous will live by faith. The line is drawn in the sand. Which side are you on? Next week when we get to chapter 4, he wants to further the argument for the Jews by using Abraham and showing how was Abraham, your father, from the ethnic perspective, but it's supposed to be from the faith perspective. But he wants to explain how Abraham became justified by God to continue the argument that the righteous will live by faith. Your works, your obedience is by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that I don't have to do three chapter reviews often. But I thank you that we all got through it. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to, to find ways where we benefit from this. To find out. And I just pray, even if we're not sure what the line in the sand is for us, where, 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 what side are we on? I mean, that question was not rhetorical that I was asking. It's a real question. What side are we on? If we're like the, uh, the Gentiles who, who you didn't give the law to that find their, their confidence and their righteousness in their intellect claiming to be wise, they become fools. Do we find our, our righteousness in our position, in how people see us, in our financial status? What accomplishments do we find our righteousness in? Help us to, to, to hone in on that. Do we find our righteousness on how long we've been coming to this church or serving in this church? Or do we find our righteousness in how many people that we've led to the Lord, to you? Like, what is it? Where, where are we off balance? The righteous will live by faith in you. And so we'll constantly give credit to you. You don't need us. This church doesn't need me for anything. Doesn't need Mike for anything. Doesn't need any of us.
We find our righteousness in our, and it humbles us because there is no boasting. We boast in what you've done. That's why we sing songs about what you've done and not about what we did. We may honor each other like, 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 like Mac did when he honored those who, the church, for their participation in the, in the back-to-school blast. And that's appropriate. Your word says outdo one another in showing honor. Absolutely. But we're not going to make a song about it. We're not going to worship ourselves over it. No, we worship you. Because, Jesus, you came and you paid the penalty for our sinfulness. You died and your blood was shed and you rose from the dead and you, you forgave. You're a God of reconciliation. You forgive us. You don't expose what we do because you're showing us we're hypocrites. You expose things that we do so that we can continue to, to go after and to glorify you. So I pray that as we are, as we are, for those of us who will take the take the question seriously, that we that we evaluate, we keep fighting. I pray for those of us in you that have faith in you, that we keep fighting. I pray that we just keep fighting. When we stumble, we keep fighting. Like last week, we keep ourselves in the love of God. We have mercy on those who doubt, and we snatch others out of the fire stay alive and make progress in our obedience. For those of us that have faith and that care about that, give us your spirit to, to continue, quicken our spirit to continue on and to fight the good fight of faith as your word lays out. And for those of us who don't, I pray, Lord, that you would use something that was said today, or even if it's not me, whoever it is, to bring them to a place of evaluation. There is no other option. Is faith in you or not? There's no other option. There's nothing about anyone that is so good that they deserve any good from you outside of Jesus Christ. 